He wanted to get healthy, eat a steak, and bake potato. So says Roderick Thorpe about the healthy eating patterns of our protagonist, Joe Leland, in Nothing Lasts Forever, here on the final episode for this book of Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And here talking about the inspiration for the movie Die Hard, I'm author Zachary Kelly. If you had to pair a meal with this book, what would it be? (sighs) Are there just like uncooked entrails of an animal that you could eat? Awful, as they call it. Yeah, just garbage. I don't know. Certainly not steak and potatoes. Die Hard's my steak and potato movie. Mm -hmm. This novel, I don't know what you would pair it with. Everclear, maybe? Yeah, I, I, I take the opposite approach. I think it's so bad. Like, it needs to be paired with something really good just to kind of make the sum total mediocre. So I'd pair this with a nice, like, Cabernet Sauvignon and just say, skip the food. We're just going to be drinking our way through this one. And you don't think that would affect your stomach at all, reading about the multiple scenes where our quote-unquote hero, Joe Leland, either pisses himself or vomits on the crime scene? Eh, I don't know. Like, you got to find one way or another to make it through this book. I still am shocked that you read it pretty much all at once. Yeah. That is a lot. It was I mean, are you okay? Pleasant. No, I'm not doing okay. For those of you who are just joining us, I, I read the entirety of the book right before our first podcast because Dr. McCallum, being a friend of mine, had warned me that this would not be a pleasant read. And I, for the sake of my own writing, I am a full-time author and I didn't want bad writing to kind of affect work that I'm doing. I did read this all in one sitting and it was a very, very unpleasant afternoon. I shotgunned a few energy drinks which I think had Joe Leland mm-hmm. lived until 2021 would probably be his drink of choice. And yeah, I just kind of lost faith in humanity for a good six hours. You know, some notable writers have spoken about the craft and written about the craft in detail. Um, what do you think someone like uh, Stephen King would have to say about this book? Yeah, so Stephen King is an author that we'll probably be reading at some point here on Literary Guys, because although he's a horror and quote-unquote just a genre writer, he's a great author, and he has a lot to say about the nature of humanity. I would say that Stephen King would probably say about Roderick Thorpe that the man has forgotten to write characters. Say what you will or feel what you will about It or The Stand or any of other Stephen King's horror novels. Maybe they're not your cup of tea, but the characters are always very nuanced, and the characters could exist inside and outside of horror. They're just real, actual people, fully realized human beings. And the only human being that has any backstory or any semblance of character is Joe Leland, who is a character that's already been established in another novel. There's there's not a sense of humanity or a spark of a soul anywhere to be found in this novel. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the ending chapters of this book just perhaps even more unpalatable. We Were you had, expecting our hero to save the day? Well, as I was saying in the previous episode, that he kind of does save the day. I mean, putting air quotes here for our listeners around that, that he does end up causing the rescue of many hostages. It's unclear exactly how this would have played out if he hadn't been there. Like, let's leave that for another Maybe more would have lived. Perhaps. But it's not a pretty picture as to how he got there and essentially how this book wraps itself up. Counterpoint, weren't these hostages just oil executives that were involved in a complicated arms deal with a nefarious Chilean government? Maybe? It's very unclear how much of what is said in this book is actually true. At the very least, they were parents who were bringing their children to a cocaine-fueled office party. Mm -hmm. Maybe those kids didn't have much of a future ahead of them anyways. Perhaps. 
But we've got a couple really just chilling scenes. Like, if you think about the movie, Die Hard, that you gotta think one of the top three moments of the film is Hans Gruber mm-hmm. falling to his death. Played by the amazing Alan Rickman. Just an amazing actor. Love his work. And to witness instead this book where Leland, I don't know, lets his daughter die by falling along with Anton Gruber the proxy for Hans Gruber here. Did that bother you? Yeah, not only does he fail to get his daughter out of the way before he unloads a full 11 rounds into Gruber Mm -hmm. to shoot him out a high-rise window, he actually blames his daughter for her own death by essentially saying, like, she didn't follow his instructions. I told her to get out of the way, and she refused. I mean, what am I going to do? He doesn't seem to have much of any remorse. I think the most we get from Joe Leland is that he doesn't want to look and see what the results were when his daughter hit the pavement. But other than that, he seems relatively okay with that outcome. I mean, it seems like he vomited about it later, so he must be feeling something. He vomited about it later, but then he was also justifying her death as, you know, man, she just didn't, Steffi didn't know what she got involved in. You know, she was doing all this cocaine, and there was this arms trade with this nefarious government. I mean, maybe, you know, this was the way her life was going to end up. And then also, by the way, it's only casually mentioned a couple times, but his grandchildren were at this cocaine field mm-hmm. office party. This is true. This is absolutely true. At no point does she show any concern for their safety. I had forgotten they were there until the police mentioned them at the very end. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the police only mentioned that they are yet to be found. Mm-hmm. We have no closure in terms of what happened to any of the children that were being held hostage because the police say none of the children have made it out of the building yet. And we're just left to wonder, did all of Joe Leland's family just perish because of his ineptitude and uh, callous violence toward others? Taking that even further, it's unclear at the end of this novel if Joe Leland actually is going to live. Like, he suffers much deeper wounds than he does in the movie, yeah. and to which I say, I don't care. Yeah, I think, to my understanding, this is a sequel from the novel, as you said earlier, of The Detective. Uh, Roderick Thorpe was bringing back a character that he had written almost a decade prior and kind of wanted an out for this character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similar to when we read From Russia with Love, an amazing Ian Fleming book who should never be mentioned in the same sentence as Roderick Thorpe, where Ian Fleming was kind of tired of writing Bond. And the Mm -hmm. ending of that is ambiguous in terms of whether Bond lives or dies. We care at the end of that. We spent nearly a whole episode talking about our shock at that scene and what it meant for Ian Fleming's career and what it could have meant for the Bond franchise. To your point, I don't care. I don't know that Jim Leland cares. I think he might be happy if he died too. He doesn't seem to have any joy in life other than, you know, casually harassing stewardesses and then calling them in the middle of firefights to continue Mm -hmm. harassing them. Which is still surreal. I mean, we're in the third episode talking about this. That, <laughs> that amongst all the idiotic things that happen in this book, I just can't get past. Like, Not only do the police repeatedly patch this woman through, this Kathy yes. woman, the flight attendant through, but then Taco Bill gets in on the mix and is like holding up his CB radio to the television set in his house so that John McClane can kind of have this conversation back and forth with her in San Diego. It's like, wh- what is happening? <laughs> what world do we live in where the media is tracking down the flight attendant 
from one of the hostages flights to interview her about this is this the same media that interviews showgirls in the far superior narratively driven movie showgirls are we talking about the local tv station that shows topless women right right we'll have a whole episode at some point on a different podcast about our love slash hatred of the mess of a movie showgirls but uh it, a lot of the same beats kind of feel the same where there's it just doesn't seem tethered in a reality that i recognize no it's not a real world and it doesn't seem like Roderick Thorpe actually seemed to care about making that realistic, which is a shame because I think it's the same point you were making about like Stephen King's imagined analysis of this book, which is he doesn't create situations. He doesn't, you know, just like he doesn't create characters. This is not a realistic situation that I can relate to and say, oh yeah, I've been there. Like, you know, I needed to call my boyfriend from, you know, a CB radio on the top of a building, but oh, by the way, I only just met him like four hours prior, like, and have no significant relationship. Oh, by the way, like, my offspring is in the building and my grandkids. Right. Like, wait, whoa, 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 back this up. Like, he seems to have more connection with this random woman than he has with his own family. Which, if the novel was trying to make a character point about that, about how this man's many years on the force and his career as a war hero and the lives he's had to take in the course of his duty has somehow made him bereft of these familial connections and all the solace that he gets in life is from casual sex, okay, that's a character choice. But mm-hmm. that's not what this novel's trying to say. No, and again... We talked about Chuck Palahniuk last episode. I feel like Chuck could have made that work. Yeah. That feels like a Chuck Palahniuk character, actually. Yeah, it's such an interesting choice because, again, this I think Jim Leland's only in two Roderick Thorpe novels, so it's not like there's a lot of backstory that's kind of painted him into this corner. Why couldn't his wife have survived? And he was trying to get back together with her, and that's who he called, similar to some of the conversations that Bruce Willis has as John McClane in the Die Hard movie. Or why couldn't he have had a new wife or a new girlfriend or somebody with any more substantive connection to him? It just it is baffling, some of the choices that are made. And again, you know, maybe I would like to sit down and have a drink with Roderick Thorpe because I really want to understand where this man was coming from. Do you think he just didn't want to devote words to characters ancillary to the plot and be like, okay, let's just come up with like the flimsiest, shortest to write version of this? I'm going to counteract my own point by citing what you said last time, which is that he then digresses into like whole pages worth of like pointless narrative that adds nothing to the character. Why just not have them? He thinks the character of Joe Leland, so in the, in the novel, because we, again, we don't expect that you've read this, he has this very strange, also slightly racist interaction with his limo driver on the way to the St. Louis airport. Mm-hmm. And the limo driver gets in a bit of a fender bender, and the other driver is very aggressive, and Joe Leland casually points his gun at the man. It's this mm-hmm. mess of a scene. But he's thinking about the limo driver throughout the course of this novel and wondering, you know, is he back? Did he get that TV that his son had built for him? You know, you've got these, again, character moments, things Mm -hmm. that could be perceived as character-defining traits but really aren't and just seem to be there to kind of pad out the novel because really all he wanted to write about was the fire hose scene, the ventilation scene, the gun behind the back scene, the walking through glass scene, the chair bomb scene. I guess that would make a great short story, and he just maybe needed filler. I don't know why half of this novel exists. Mm-hmm. 
So, as you're talking about those, like, cool scenes, one of the last ones, which plays out differently in this book, is after McLean gets out of the building, that he's attacked by Carl. So Carl exists in both. If you remember the the long-haired Fabio-looking terrorist from Die Hard, Carl, whose mm-hmm. brother is killed by John McClane, that same scenario occurs in the course of Nothing Lasts Forever. And so as we think the character has escaped and is going to be you know, taken away by ambulance or, you know, we, actually we don't know if he's going to live or not, guess what? Carl pops up out of nowhere and starts trying to shoot John McClane. So... Right, so so it plays out a little bit differently here. Instead of shooting him, which is what I believe happens in the movie, with a quickly pulled out gun, we have a different scenario, which is just super weird. Yeah, so the character of Al Powell is in both the novel and the movie, the same name. I believe in a previous episode I called him Carl Winslow. That's just because I grew up with Family Matters and the amazing Reginald Vell Johnson, who plays the character in the movie. But... This is a great example of giving characters some backstory and some nuance and not just writing a, oh, this cop was a black cop and that's enough and that's all you need to know about him. In the movie, we get this amazing scene where John McClane's back is turned, the terrorist has risen from the dead, and Al, who we know because they've actually had some moments of human interaction between the two, we know has been relegated to his desk job because he accidentally discharged his gun at a scene of a crime or something like that and had accidentally taken a child's life and was so reticent about ever using his gun again and ever really being the cop that he had Mm -hmm. dreamed of being. And there's this amazing character redefining moment where he's the one who saves the day at the very end. It's not the white hero, John McClane. It's this cop who has been steadfastly supporting him throughout this entire movie. He makes the final shot and kills the terrorist. And it's this beautiful redeeming moment that creates a character arc for this secondary character that you would expect to be in a novel and not in the movie. And again, Mm -hmm. it's vice versa here because... The character of Al in the book, who has no such interesting backstory, is just there to exist and to facilitate Joe Leland's own terror spree, I guess, um, instead of being the quickest on the draw and killing the terrorist, pulls his police chief in front of him as a human shield, mm-hmm. lets that man take the bullet. And again, there are many bullets, so I think also reporters die, and then in the very last paragraph, we learn that the doctor there to treat everyone has also been shot. So it's this mess of an ending scene, mm. and this character of Al justifies pulling this other man in front of them as a human shield as, uh, that's the way he would have wanted to go out. He was, a, he was a hero, and he died doing what he loved, and mm-hmm. it just seems so callous and so cavalier towards human life, but that really is all that we've come to expect from this novel. Mm-hmm. No, I'm glad you brought up L. Powell, because I think one of the things that I connect with so much with the movie is there's, look at it, it's it's a bit of a bromance that's going on between these guys. And those things really fascinate me, those kind of just guy-guy relationships that are about valor and Mm -hmm. about, and it doesn't need to be, you know, fighting crime or anything like that. It could be in the business world. It could be, you know, doing good things in public. It could be that, but there's that connection. There's that bromance, if you want to call it that. And it's a tough thing, I think, for movies to get right. Yeah. And for literature to, to get right. 
and we've seen it. Like, I mean, you could even look at books going back to like Evelyn Waugh's *Brides Head Revisited*. Like, th there's an attempt to have, you know, like a bromance there. You, there's many different readings of that book, by the way. So I don't necessarily want to imply that's the only reading of it. But I think it's really interesting that that's a dynamic that you don't see used that often, particularly in literature. We don't see it here in this book. No, I, again, it doesn't exist in the that book. Flavor. It's amazing how it's such a tough thing to just get right and have it feel genuine. Like, there's been plenty of buddy cop movies and that kind of stuff. For some reason, the bromance, if you want to call it that, in Die Hard is one of the most genuine bromance moments I think that's ever been captured on film. I can't disagree with that because I think the, the beauty of that moment in the movie, especially when they're kind of bearing each other's souls to them. Again, two men who have never met in real life don't even know what each other mm -hmm. looks like at that point in the movie. are bearing each other's souls over this walkie-talkie. There's that element of trust that John McClane realizes he has no choice but to trust Al. And Al recognizes the precarious position that John McClane is in mm -hmm. and knows he needs someone out there to trust. And how do they establish that trust? They open themselves up. They talk about their emotions. They share some dark secrets. Yeah. And man, isn't that the key to good friendship? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. It's amazing how that just, it just plays out so quickly in that moment. And I think as we talk about what can we take away from this, maybe there isn't anything to take away from the book, but maybe from the movie, like, you know, that's, one of the things that gives it heart. Yeah. There's this ongoing, easy escape for men not to talk about those deeper feelings, to talk about their own faults, to bear their souls, if you will, because it does lead to those type of, of deeper connections. And, you know, I think modern culture still has this idea that, you know, that kind of like deep soulmate connection, you know, is only part of this perfect soulmate male-female relationship that somehow exists, that they're their one confidant and, and all that. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think that that's necessarily the way that, that men operate and that it's so important to be able to, you know, to have that conversation. I'm a big believer in therapy, by the way, and I think that is one of the mechanisms that needs to be there. That's in a very professional and sterile kind of context, but I also think that it's really important for men to share what they're feeling with with someone, uh, with a friend, with someone who you just met over a police band radio or, uh, you know, in therapy, if that's what, what works for you. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think if there is an interesting thing that the movie has to say about masculinity, it might just be that more often than not, those close male bonds happen under duress. It happens when men have no other choice but to trust one another and to open themselves up. You hear all the time about the close bonds formed during wartime. Yeah. And you see in the movie Die Hard about these two men who are in a very precarious predicament and have no other choice but to go that route. And if it says anything about men, it says, hey, maybe don't let it come to the, you know, the potential last moments of your life before you bear your soul to another man. Maybe maybe give those friends that you've had in your life for long enough or even those casual acquaintances that have shown their true selves to you that you believe you know who they really are. Mm -hmm. Don't wait until it might be too late to have those conversations. Have those conversations early and often. 
you, you'll probably get burned a couple times. I'm sure you and I can talk about male friends who have burned us and yep, who, absolutely. you know, maybe we shouldn't have uh, bared our souls to. But I think more often than not, you're going to be surprised at other men's capacity to to listen and to love and to empathize. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's what we can take away. Not certainly not from this book, but from the movie that the friendship that John McClane and Al Powell have in that movie is a friendship that we can all have. And we don't need to battle terrorists at Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles to get there. Well, I really don't think there's too much that I can add to that. I think you put it very well. So we've come to that point in the book where I need to ask, how is Joe Leland like Macbeth? <laughs> I forgot you were going to try to do this from time to time. Or is it is Joe Leland Macbeth? Joe Leland is not Macbeth because Macbeth actually has strong women around him. This is true. This is very true. Well-defined women with motivations and strength of character and the ability to actually drive the plot forward instead of just being a plot device. Yeah. I guess we've established that uh, Roderick Thorpe is no Shakespeare. I could have guessed that from the first few sentences, but that may have just been the lack of iambic pentameter. (laughs) And before we wrap things up here, do we have a sponsor for today's episode? We do. We're doing well this time, my friend. We've got big oil money coming into the podcast. Klaxon money? Oh, you know it. It's a Klaxon Oil Company Christmas Explosion. That's right. All holiday long, we're hosting a fire sale down at Klaxon Oil headquarters. Everything must go, and we mean everything. Windows, office furniture, $6 million in unmarked loose bills right out the window. We're even giving away innocent civilians and German terrorists with inexplicable Chilean sympathies. That's right. It's a Christmas explosion down at Claxon Oil headquarters. Bring your daughter. Heck, bring your grandchildren. It's a cocaine-fueled office party, and they've got to learn sometime. Hurry up before this sale crumbles to earth. We're making way for the new Nakatomi Office Plaza, so all 40 stories must be liquidated. We have really ramped up production value on this podcast as well. I, I don't really know. I gotta gotta thank Eric Bennett on the uh, the acoustics here for uh, for making this this work. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. We mentioned it before. We've got a special treat for our next episode. Zach, do you want to give out the details? Yeah. So you and I have talked from time to time about our love of discovering cocktail bars in various cities around the country and mm-hmm. around the world. Perhaps. More so than ever, it's important to shine a light on some of these businesses that have been struggling during the pandemic. So now that the world's opening up again, we're going to start traveling a little bit for the literary guys. And maybe not every fourth Monday of the month, but certainly a lot of the months, we're going to be traveling to some cities with literary history, reviewing some great cocktails that we have there and talking a little bit about the history of that place. We're going easy on ourselves. We're based in Seattle and we're going down to Tacoma, which is a short 40 minute drive. And it is the birthplace of Frank Herbert, author of Dune, the new movie from Denis Villeneuve, which is in theaters now. So we're excited to talk about both our love of science fiction, of Dune, and my love of Timothy Chalamet. You know what? And my girlfriend's love of Timothy Chalamet. What is it about that guy? I don't get it. I don't know. (laughs) There's a certain je ne sais quoi. But we will be uh, also talking about our, our deep and profound love for the Tacoma cocktail scene and, and giving you some places to go should you ever find yourself in there. But we'll be traveling all throughout the country, the Pacific Northwest, and uh, once we're able to, even the world, to kind of bring you some of these literary and mixology delights 
around the country. We hope you guys enjoy kind of this new facet of Literary Guys and maybe it kind of branches us out a little bit. So we're looking forward to you guys joining us on that journey. If you ever want to host us in your hometown, let us know and uh, we'll be happy to be in touch. Sounds great. How can our listeners stay in touch, Zach? You know, we are on social media at Literary Guys. That's G-U-I-S-E. Uh, we're on social media, Instagram, Twitter. You can also reach out to us at litguys at gmail.com. Go to literaryguys.com. Basically, any way that you would normally reach out to someone in this day and age on the internet, you can do it for us. And we would love to hear from you. We want this to be a dialogue, and we want to have some deep, rich conversations that will no longer involve anything by Roger Thorpe. Well, I certainly hope that our listeners check out the Instagram. I think the imagery there is great for each of the episodes that we have, and I think it'll be a great place to have a conversation. Looking forward to having some dialogue with you guys there. It's, it's important that we as men, those who identify as men, those who want to understand men better, that we all kind of have a dialogue and conversations about this, and we don't wait till we're in the foxhole with somebody to really open ourselves up to them. Mm-hmm. Let's all just get to start on that right now. Well, I want to thank everyone. If you've listened to the last three episodes of us rip this book apart, I appreciate it. You have more patience than I do. Anyhow, my thanks as well to the Stardust Lounge, to Crystal, to Edgar Bergamont on the piano. And until we meet again in Tacoma, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.